one phenomena I still do not understand is the birth announcement. Birth announcements are really popular nowadays. What you do is, is when you're about to have a child, you send out these little postcard-like things to all your friends and family that have pictures of the child and give the child's name and tell everybody everything they need to know about the birth of the new baby. It doesn't make sense to me because, in my mind, I think, don't my friends and family already know that I'm having a child? And if they don't know, are they really close enough to me to deserve receiving such an announcement or to even want it. And so as I thought, why do parents send out birth announcements? I think it's because, especially with the first child, when a baby is born, there is a monumental change in the life of the couple. No longer will husband and wife be able to do whatever they want when they want. From now on, they'll be at the service of a tiny, squealing creature that cannot hold up its own head or even sit up without any help. Indeed, their mornings will begin starting before the sun comes up and their nights will end before it goes down. In some ways, the birth announcement is like a resignation from a normal social life. Luke opens his gospel after informing us that he has carefully investigated the events surrounding the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and that it is his goal that we can know with certainty that these things happened in time and space and are true. After that little introduction, he begins by giving us birth announcements. Not on little cards with cute little pictures of babies, but on the lips of angels. As we have the birth of John the Baptist announced to Zechariah. The birth of Jesus announced to Mary. And then the arrival of Jesus announced to some shepherds in a field. The announcement of Jesus' birth will indeed change everything. But not just for the parents for the world, and for us. Christmas changes everything. And God wrote the story of Christmas long before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Indeed, God is the author of history and He chose the town of Bethlehem during the reign of Caesar Augustus to write himself into the story. And that's what we come to today, the birth of Jesus Christ, the hero of history, the salvation of God's people. And the main idea, what I want you to walk away pondering after we leave this small pericope this morning is this, that God is the author of history and that he's written himself into the story as the hero who saves his people. God is the ultimate protagonist. And I want to encourage you this morning to come and worship the King of Christmas. To come and worship King Jesus. 
We'll work through the text in just two parts this morning. The first five verses, we'll discuss how God governs history. And with the final two verses, we will briefly discuss how God has entered his story. I love a good pun, and so there it is. Let's pray, and we will get started this morning. Father, we come to you this morning empty-handed and hopeful. We come with nothing to bring except for our sins. And we confess them once more, delighting in the truth that if our faith is in Christ, you are pleased to wash them away once more. We thank you that in Christ we are your people. That in Christ we are forgiven. We thank you that it is by Christ alone that we can have peace with you. Nothing we could ever do could earn us your favor. And yet, you have chosen to pour out your love on us. To give to us your Holy Spirit. To call us to yourself. You have chosen to make this dead people come to life. You've chosen to give us satisfaction and joy in you. We thank you for the work of Christ that brings us together here this morning to consider his birth. We ask that you would teach us during this time. You would help us to be focused on you so that we might hear what it is you have to say. Speak, Lord, for your people listen. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world or whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Luke is very careful to situate the birth of Christ in time and space during the reign of Caesar Augustus. There is not a whiff or a shadow of fantasy in this account. Luke wants us to know that he is writing history. Caesar really lived. And Jesus really lived. Caesar Augustus thought to count up his political power and clout by declaring a census. It was for tax revenue purposes. But God had ordained it as the means by which he would move his Messiah King 
to the little town of Bethlehem. Caesar's visible power was being moved along by the invisible hand of God. The orchestra of the cosmos plays according to God's good pleasure. Nothing happens by chance or happenstance. It is ordained. God is involved. Caesar's census was the catalyst that moved Joseph and Mary and Jesus to the place that they needed to be at the proper time. Indeed, God changes times and seasons, Daniel 2.21. He removes kings and sets up kingdoms. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And God had turned the heart of Caesar Augustus to call for this registration for his own means so that he might fulfill his word. Even the prophecy of Micah. We just read it earlier. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God has ordained that the Messiah will not come from the mighty city of Jerusalem, but from the little town of Bethlehem. This would be in contemporary terms like God determining that the most important person to ever live is not going to come from New York City, but from Nellie's Ford. God is using the mighty Roman Empire to do his bidding. Indeed, he ensures that Jesus is on nature's train, that he rides it for nine months and then gets off at Bethlehem. We do wonder, why Bethlehem, this small city, And of course, we are reminded of that wonderful story of Naomi in the book of Ruth. Naomi, with her husband and her two sons, leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, which is full during the time of famine. And she goes to Moab. And there in Moab, she suffers a threefold bereavement, losing not only her husband, but her two sons as well over the course of ten years. Finally, after the loss of her sons, she is forced to return home. And so, returning home, she takes with her her daughter-in-law, Ruth, where they anticipate living with not much in poverty. And yet, in returning to Bethlehem, 
they discover that God had plans to make Naomi full again by way of Ruth. Ruth, who steals the heart of her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. Boaz, if you know the story, marries Ruth and sires a child who is named Obed. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. One can almost imagine little David playing in the fields of Bethlehem before he grows into the ruddy shepherd that we are introduced to in 1 Samuel, when the prophet shows up to ordain him as king. You remember the story. Samuel shows up to Jesse's house. He knows that he's going to ordain one of Jesse's sons as the king of Israel. And he thinks to himself, wow, Eliab is is the oldest, and he looks really strong, and and he's the one that's going to be the king. God says, This is not the one. And reminds Samuel that the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Samuel continues searching through Jesse's sons until it seems as if none are left. And he says, do you have any more children, any more sons here that I don't know about? And Jesse says, well, there is David. He is, he's out among the sheep. He's the the youngest, or the word could be translated smallest among his brothers. And and David is subsequently summoned and Samuel has it revealed to him that this is the one God has chosen as king. An unlikely choice. And yet God chooses to raise David up as Israel's greatest king. And so it it makes perfect sense to us that great David's greater son would be born in the city of David. And so God moves Joseph, who is of the city of David, called Bethlehem, and of the house of David, and of the family line of David, God leads him to Bethlehem through the decree of Caesar Augustus. Friends, God is intimately involved in the world and in the lives of his people. God did not just create the world, wind it up, and then stand back and watch. God cares about his creatures. He cares about his creation. And indeed, he has orchestrated all things to unfold according to his good will and purposes. Ephesians 1.11 In him, that's Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. God doesn't work just some things according to the counsel of his will, not just most things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 10:29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. 
even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God is intimately involved in everything. He's providentially involved. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism has a question and answer to this question about what is God's providence. They ask, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is this. God's providence is his mighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God has created the world and all that is within it, and he sustains that world. Indeed, God still holds the whole world in his hands. Nothing is happening off schedule. Nothing is surprising the Lord our God. He is in control. He's ordered all things. This great truth of God's providence should be the pillow upon which we rest our heads at night. Because God is in control, we can have confidence to face any and every circumstance knowing that He has ordained it. We can endure any difficulty or trial with joy knowing that God is using it to mature us into the image of Christ. Knowing that God brings light out of darkness, beauty out of ashes. We can rest because God is at work. We can sleep easy because God is awake. I love Psalm 121. As I lift my eyes into the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. God is your keeper. God is your protector. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. God has control of you and his world. The Bible is resoundingly clear that God is not distant or uninterested in us or his world. And yet, so many Christians turn into functional deists every four years. 
So many Christians have acted as atheists during this year of 2020. As if God has no control over viruses and unrest. As if God were surprised by the predicament of the last nine months. Wringing his hands and sweating. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? No, God does not function that way. 2020 has not been a hard year for God. It's been unfolding according to his perfect plan. God is not sweating, and what that means for you is that you don't have to either. You don't have to wring your hands and freak out. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? God is in control. Well, what are you going to do? You can trust and obey. You can be faithful. You can pray to God and say, God, I don't necessarily understand all the reasons you have for ordering things the way that you have, but you know what? I know your character. I know your love for me. And so I can trust you even now when it's really difficult. Indeed, it's a, it's a hard year. But I can trust your heart even when I can't see your purposes. God is in control. We, we don't need to freak out. We can rest in his providence. And it is God's kind providence that caused Caesar Augustus to call for a census. Indeed, he foretold the arrival of the Messiah hundreds of years before this chapter and these verses were written. And yet, through a failed monarchy, 400 years of prophetic silence, at the end of it all, we hear, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. All this to move one scandalous couple to the right city at the right time so that it would be clear to all that God's Savior is born in Bethlehem. We read that Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. This is a difficult providence in the life of Joseph and Mary. They had plans for a life together, for careers. They had dreams. And when God showed up and told Mary that the light of the world was going to be trapped inside of her womb for nine months, those dreams got destroyed. God uprooted the plans of Joseph and Mary and replaced them with his own. And if anybody ever needed an angelic vision, it was Joseph. He gets it in Matthew chapter 1. We read, And Mary's husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph believes the angelic proclamation. God is upending his plans, and Joseph submits himself to the Lord's plan. Mary's response is perhaps even more astounding. Gabriel shows up, announces that God the Son is going to live inside of her womb, and she only has one question about the mechanics of the thing. And after he answers her, she responds, I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. This is an incredible response. I mean, how do you respond when God uproots your plans? Respond like Joseph with obedience? Or like Mary, I'm the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. Do you embrace the adventure that God is taking you on, or do you grumble and complain and cling to the life that you want for yourself? It is not easy to follow Jesus. I mean, it wasn't easy for Mary and Joseph either. I mean, imagine the cultural shame that they would have had to endure in the first century. They would have been seen as fornicators. Mary would have been understood as promiscuous, and Joseph would have been seen as naive. They would have been shamed, rejected socially. And yet, they follow the Lord's plan. I mean, can you, can you imagine being Joseph, trying to explain to your friends, really, really guys, she's been totally faithful to me. She was, God announced to her that she would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and that she would be pregnant with the Son of God. She's, she's been faithful. She's not cheating. I mean, they're going, this guy's a dope. What a joke. We know where babies come from. And it's not that way, Joseph. Or Mary trying to tell her friends, I, I've been entirely faithful. I've been faithful to Joseph. And what is in me is from the wonder-working God. I mean, they're going to laugh her out of the room. This doesn't happen. This couple is going to be seen as scandalous. They're going to be rejected. It's going to cost them to follow Jesus. And friends, it, it will cost you to follow Jesus. It costs us all. It's for good reason, our Lord says in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friends, salvation is free. Jesus has purchased for you peace with God at the expense of his blood. It's paid for. 
But in order to take hold of this wonderful gift of salvation, it will cost you everything. In order to enjoy salvation, you must repent of your sin and follow Jesus. You must die to yourself and live to God. You must give up your life so that you might find it. Non-Christian, you, like, like all of us, need a Savior. Your sins have alienated you from God. You have lived life your way rather than God's way. You have exalted yourself as God of your life rather than the one true God who is. You have taken up arms against Him. And for that treason, you are owed His right wrath stretched out across eternity in hell. This is what God owes all men. His wrath. You need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. When we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for sins, this is what we're talking about. He is absorbing the wrath of God that is due to all those who will put their faith in Him. Jesus dies for your sin and for my sin and for the sins of all who will lay down their arms and come to Him. And so I implore you this morning, non-Christian, stop trying to fight against God. Submit to His rulership. Stop trying to create your own meaning. And follow Him in whose image you were created. Stop trying to forge your own identity. And delight in the God who made you to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. You will not find satisfaction apart from the God you are made for. Turn from your sin. It will be costly. It will feel like dying, but it will be eternally worth it. Entirely worth it. Trust in Christ. Christian, I wonder what, what are you giving up in order to be obedient to the word of the Lord in your life? Mary and Joseph give up their, their sterling reputations in order to be obedient to God's call in their lives. I wonder, would you be willing to do the same? Are you willing to do the same? Our current cultural climate, it will cost you to identify as a Christian. It will cost you even more to evangelize. There's a, a high likelihood that you will be looked down on or shamed. Are you willing? Are you willing to give up your reputation to follow Jesus? Are you willing to identify as a Christian or to tell others about Jesus? 
This is a call that is enjoined upon all of us. And it is difficult. I understand we all have to, we have relationships we are in that we need to navigate winsomely and strategically. But there does need to come a point where you are having conversations, multiple conversations with others about who Jesus is. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus ought to occupy the central place in your life. I mean, imagine being friends with somebody for, for five years, and you guys meet for coffee or something once a week, you talk, you have a great relationship, and they never tell you that they have a family, that they have a spouse and children. And then one day, out of the blue, they say to you, by, by the way, uh, three kids and a spouse you're going to wonder what on earth caused them to keep such important information about themselves from you. Why why wouldn't you have told me this a long time ago? But this is exactly what we do as Christians so often with evangelism. Oh, we'll talk about Jesus later. Won't won't really bring that up. Don't want to, you know, don't want to rock the boat. Friends, our lives and relationships should be marked by lots of conversations about Jesus. How selfish is it to refuse to bring up your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with friends or family because you want to preserve temporary niceties? Do you understand the exchange you're making there? I won't feel awkward for 30 minutes to an hour and that'll come at the expense of eternal truth. It's selfish to keep Jesus to yourself. Again, this should take place. Evangelism typically takes place over the course of many conversations. I think we get it wrong when we think that evangelism is just a one-time conversation and it's all or nothing. I think it puts too much pressure on us and too much pressure on the person with whom we're sharing. We need to be able to comfortably talk about Christ, talk about the family of God. And we must talk. Evangelism, at the end of the day, requires words. No one has this testimony, right? Hi, I'm Joe from the office. I was just watching, uh, watching Bill's life. He, he lived a really, really good life. It was, it was so good, and he's always happy, really joyful, uh, all the time, and it just hit me. I, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, that I had inherited my first father Adam's sin, and I had begun participating in that rebellion against God, and that I was owed the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ came into the world born of a virgin, without Adam's original sin, and lived a perfect life in my place, earning me the blessing of God, and that his death on the cross was a substitutionary death wherein he took the penalty of God towards my sin and that he rose from the dead where he rules and reigns at God's right hand right now and he's returning one day to make all things new. Now, now because I just watched Bill's good life, I am a Christian. That's no one's testimony. Evangelism requires Words, just like oxygen 
<laughs> got this backwards. Just like breathing requires oxygen, you cannot evangelize without words. Evangelism is it's simply teaching others about Jesus with the aim to persuade them to believe in Jesus. It is a hard thing. And yet it is something that we are called to as Christians. What an excellent opportunity you have at this time of year, every year, to engage others with the good news of Jesus Christ. I said this a few weeks ago, but brothers and sisters, if you're going to ruin a family dinner, don't do it with politics, do it with religion. Do not waste a good opportunity to bring up Jesus with your family and with your friends. It's often hard to follow Jesus and to obey his word. And yet it's what we are called to. It's what Joseph and Mary were called to. And so because of their commitment to God and to one another, they went to Bethlehem. And so we read in verse 6 of chapter 2. Why they were there, that's Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I think in order to understand these two verses properly, we have to clear away some of the weeds that have grown up around Christmas in terms of tradition. There are some things that are absent from Luke's account of Jesus' birth, as well as Matthew's. I'm going to point out a few to you. So first, the magi, or the wise men, are not present at the birth of Jesus. Right? They, don't, they don't show up for a couple years when Jesus is a toddler. And we don't know how many magi or wise men there were. There, there are three gifts, but there could have been 300 wise men for all we know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Secondly, there's, there's no star over the place where Jesus is born. Remember that the star appears and the magi follow that star from far away to where Jesus is. And they arrive a year and a half, two years later. In fact, the shepherds who will show up are told not to look for a star but the sign they are to look for is a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This one comes as a shock to many. There's no little drummer boy. You also notice that there's, the text doesn't say anything about the night being silent. I think it's safe to assume that Jesus came into the world like most healthy children covered in blood, and that weird, like, waxy film that they get on them. Screaming and crying. That's what babies do. I think perhaps what's most surprising to us is the absence of any harsh innkeeper. Like, if you're like me, and you grew up around church plays at Christmas time, uh, you've probably seen or played a role in one of these Christmas plays, right? You know how the storyline goes. Uh, Joseph and Mary, they show up at the, the inn, and they want a room. 
And so they're at the front desk with the receptionist, and, and Mary's kind of, oh, you know, she's having those labor pains, and the receptionist is like, Joseph, you schmuck. It's census time. We don't have any rooms. Like, not even for me and my pregnant wife, and the, the harsh innkeeper has, it has no effect on the, on the receptionist, right? Her little Grinch-sized heart isn't softened a bit. No rooms. And so Joseph and Mary are exiled from this hotel, the ancient Holiday Inn, and they have to walk around until finally they find a stable where, where she is able to give birth. That's all pure fantasy. That's not in the text. In fact, the word in, in verse 7, is a bad translation of that word in Greek. I mean, it can be translated in sometimes, but that's not how Luke employs it in his gospel. Luke uses this particular word as a referent for a guest room. It's in the mouth of Jesus when he asks his disciples to prepare for him an upper room, a place to eat the Last Supper. And that upper room is quite obviously inside of a private residence. And so the question comes, if this is not a, a normal kind of holiday in Motel 6 kind of in here, if it's a guest room, where, where is it a guest room? Where was Jesus born? And there, there are two possible interpretations of this. The first one is that Joseph and Mary go to family of Joseph's. Right? It makes sense. This is where Joseph is from. He would have family in the area. And so they go to where Joseph has kin, and they're looking for a place to stay. But the guest room is already occupied. And therefore, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are going to have to stay in the main room. First century houses were a little bit different than ours, and they were constructed. They, they had a main room and a loft, a guest room, and sometimes even a stable. But it was very routine for people to actually share their quarters with animals. They'd bring you know, their cattle or more valuable animals in at night to keep them safe. Now, that sounds really strange to us. But there are still places in other parts of the world where they bring their animals in at night. It's actually probably not all that bad. I mean, living with children is similar. But they, they bring them in. And so the idea here is that they don't stay in the, the guest room, but in the, the main family room where mangers and hay would be ordinary features. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation is that the guest room is full and the house is full and the family doesn't have one of those attached stables, but one that's close to the house and a little far off. And typically, in the first century, caves were what was used as a stable. And so the interpretation goes that Jesus was born in the family stable or a family cave where the animals were housed. The second interpretation is bolstered uh, by the fact that it is the most ancient understanding of this particular text. The, the oldest interpreters of Scripture believed that Jesus was born in a grotto, a cave. I'm not sure which one is right. I don't think we can say beyond the shadow of a doubt. I tend to favor the, the second interpretation because it's older. But the first one, I think, is, is certainly viable. Luke's point, though, it's the same. 
Jesus' birth is bereft of any pageantry or pomp. It is humble. This is not what we expect. We expect that God's Savior, great David's greater son, the one who is going to save God's people from their sins, the one who is going to make all things well, we expect him to be born in a palace. We expect him to, to be born, you know, in tights with an S on his chest like Superman. Why doesn't he come in a more fabulous way? Why isn't Jesus born so that everybody knows exactly who he is? Why doesn't he come with fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand? Why does he come this way? Because he is born that he might die. Jesus Christ comes the first time not to bring judgment, but to bear it. And what we are to see in the humble birth of Christ is that he is the most approachable person in the universe. No palace gates keep anyone from coming to Jesus. No royal guard prevents anyone from getting to Jesus. I mean, shepherds and magi alike can show up to worship him. It's incredible. God the Son is born not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, but in the little town of Bethlehem. Have you ever thought about how preposterous this is? The, the incarnation is the supreme miracle in Christianity. For in it, the infinite becomes finite. The transcendent becomes eminent to the point of being made like one of us. God becomes a man. The creator writes himself into creation. God the Son will experience hunger pains, will have armpits and nostrils, will know what it is to be thirsty. Jesus Christ will nurse at the breast of his mother, will have his diapers changed, and be laid on the wood of a manger at his birth. The God-man will grow up he will mature and grow in wisdom and stature. He will have friends. He will laugh. He will cry. And at the end of his life, he will be laid on the wood of the cross. Christmas is about God beginning to finish the salvation of his people. It, is in, it should be incredible to us that in eternity past, Jesus agreed with the Father and the Spirit to come and to become like one of us forever. 
In the incarnation, the eternal becomes killable. That's the point of Christmas. Christmas without crucifixion is a farce. It's pointless. If the baby in the cradle that is a manger never gets to the cross and dies, then we have no reason to crown him as king. He lived to die so that he might save you and die from our sins. Christmas is about the cross. Jesus is born to die and he's born to resurrect again. Born to give us second birth. Born to raise us up from the dead. Born to rule us as our mighty king. When we consider the birth of Christ and the person of Christ, friends, we need to see Jesus for who he is. He is the king who lays down his life for a criminal people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart. He will never cast out, wag his finger at, curse, look down his nose at anyone who comes to him. Friends, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come to him. His arms are open. Only he can give you life. Come to the one who came, the one who died to secure your salvation. Come and worship the King of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the staggering truth of the Incarnation. That indeed Jesus would come as a man so that he might be killable. So that he might die for our sins and raise up for our justification. This is the good news of the Gospel. That all who repent of sin and trust in Jesus will not suffer the wrath that they have earned the judgment that they deserve, but instead will enjoy all the blessing and love that is due to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. We thank you for the opportunity to ponder the miraculous nature of the incarnation of the cross and of your love for us. Indeed, you are the author of history. You are our greatest hero. You are our deepest love. We give our lives to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.